It's good to have you guys here. Please have a seat, and uh, if you've got a Bible, want to turn to Psalm 106. That's where we're headed right now. Psalm 106 is a rather long psalm. It's about 43 verses, and we're not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to try to summarize it a little bit just for the sake of time and clarity, but it's a, it's a powerful psalm. We're in a series, sermon series, called the Songbook of Jesus, and one of the purposes of this series is I want us to understand that um, the scriptures that Jesus referred to were the scriptures that we would call the Old Testament, and I'm afraid there are a lot of people in our churches today, maybe even some of, of, of you, who don't realize the, the power and the authority by which those, that Old Testament speaks. You cannot really understand the New Testament without having an understanding of the Old Testament. The New Testament reveals the promises God made to us in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's the foundation by which we understand what Jesus has done for us in the New Testament. You really need to understand that Jesus grew up singing these psalms in his worship experiences. When he went to the synagogue, he sang and prayed and meditated upon these psalms that we're mentioning and talking about and we have over these last few weeks. Now, Psalm 106 isn't ever referenced by Jesus as far as I know, but it is referenced by uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who came as a forerunner to Christ. Zechariah, when he found out that his son had been born to him, John, he broke out in song. Now, he hadn't said a word in, in months while his wife Elizabeth carried John as a sign from the Lord that, that John was who uh, was the forerunner. But when Zechariah could finally speak, he breaks out in song and he references Psalm 106 in expressing his praise to the Lord for fulfilling his promises to the people of God to bring a Messiah into the world. I want to kind of frame this psalm for us in this way. I'm a history nerd. I love history. I love particularly church history. Matter of fact, right now I'm reading a, a book on church history. I'm fascinated by how God has, has, uh, gave birth to the church and the men and the women that he used to build his church. Um, but there was a man named John Wesley. Anybody ever heard the name John Wesley before? I'm sure that you have. John Wesley's a towering figure in church history. John Wesley began a renewal movement Back in 1739, a renewal movement that took place in the Church of England that came to be known as Methodism. That's how we get Methodist churches. These were men and women that picked up uh, John Wesley's teachings and began to practice them. But Methodism was actually a renewal movement that began, that began in the Church of England way back in the 1700s. And what John Wesley did is he established this movement by organizing it into what we or what he called fans. B-A-N-D-S, bands. Bands were just simply small groups of people, usually divided by age and, and gender and uh, marital status. And every week, these bands would come together with the express purpose of confessing their sins to one another. So, they, they did this, and, and, and Wesley promoted this band movement, if you will, 
by claiming that th through this means God would fulfill his promise to us in James 5.16, which I'm sure many of you already know, especially if you're in the recovery movement. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. That's why he broke people up into bands and had them confess their sins to one another. And every week, every person in the band was asked four questions. The four questions were this, were these. What known sins have you committed since our last meeting? What temptations have you met with? How were you delivered from those temptations? What have you thought, said, or done of which you doubt whether it be sin or not? I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty good recovery meeting to me. Long before Bill W. and the Oxford movement came along, John Wesley was doing this in local churches just like ours. Confessing sins to one another so that people could be healed. And i, I got to be honest, I, I really believe that it would be good for us as the people of God, to rediscover this discipline of confession again. Confession is simply this. It's the discipline of being honest with ourselves, of being honest with God, of being honest with other people. It's the discipline of being honest. To confess our faith is to tell the truth about God. To confess our sins is to tell the truth about ourselves. We ought to practice confession on a regular basis. And as soon as I say that, you guys are thinking in terms of the Catholic Church and the, the practice of confession within that worship structure. I'm not talking about that at all. I just think sometimes we come to each other with a mask on our faces and we fail to get real with one another about what we're really struggling with. And because we're not real with what we're struggling with, we never get the help, the encouragement, the strength we need from one another to get the help, to overcome that problem that we're dealing with. So I think we ought to begin to practice confession on a regular basis, and I'm glad to say that in this church, I think we do. This is one of the most honest groups of people I've ever been around, and I appreciate that, and I hope that we always carry out that practice. But we need to practice confession on, on, a, on a regular basis, not just, a, 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 not just confession as part of a worship experience or a recovery group, but specific confession as part of our own personal worship of God. I think we don't need to just practice confession when we come together in a corporate setting every once in a while. I think we need to practice confession every day when we come into God's presence, whether it's here or in our prayer closet at home. We need to be honest with God, honest with ourselves about who we are and where we're at. We need confession. And I want you to understand something as we talk about confession today because I'm about to step on some toes and we'll talk about that in a minute. Confession is not, get, is not something that God needs from us. God doesn't need us for anything. He doesn't need us to confess. He doesn't need to hear our confession so he won't feel like he's going easy on us. He's not looking for a reason to slap us down. That's not why we, we confess. You see, forgiveness isn't isn't a dollar bill that we have to pry out of his hand to get it from him. That's not who our Father God is. He paid a great price, the life of his own dear son, to offer forgiveness to us. So don't think that God doesn't want to give us forgiveness. Oh, he's more than ready to forgive us for whatever sin we may have, we may have committed, for whatever defects we might have. You see, God knows that we need confession. We need confession. 
in order to have an honest and healthy relationship with Him that's based on who we really are and the struggles we really face, not on who we pretend to be. That's our problem. We want to approach God with this pretense of, I'm good, everything's fine, Lord, I'm straight. And the reality is inside we're a mess and we're struggling. Defects everywhere. We need confession in order to heal from the wounds of our sin. In order to walk out of the shame and the guilt that we still sometimes feel like it's attached to us still. We need confession in order to be changed more and more into the image of Christ. In the New Testament, there's a little letter called the book of 1 John. 1 John was written to believers in Christ Jesus. These were people who had already repented of sin, placed their faith and trust in Christ Jesus, and had been filled with the uh, power of the Holy Spirit. So this book was written to believers just like you and me. But 1 John 1.8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and refusing to accept the truth. The reality is we're walking with Christ. We've been saved, redeemed by the blood of Christ, washed in the blood of the Lamb. But there is still part of this old man in us that's always trying to resurrect itself. Am I alone in that? I still can identify things in me that don't belong. And that's why Paul tells us to put off that old man and to walk in the newness of life. But that's a daily, that's a daily journey, taking off that old man, taking off those old attitudes, putting down those old behaviors. I don't know, am I alone in that? Am I the only one that has to do that on a daily basis? The beautiful thing is, John 1.8 tells us if we say we're without sin, we're lying to ourselves. And refusing to accept the truth, the next verse is my favorite in the whole Bible. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins to him, if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from every wrong. You see, the Lord has only just begun this sanctifying work in us. We have to daily yield to him those areas of our life that still are not, eh, you know, and confession is the means by which we receive the grace of God to be forgiven, to be healed, to be cleansed. Confession allows us to be real with God so that God can be faithful to his promise to forgive us and cleanse us from the sin that we can't remove ourselves. What Psalm 106 is, it's essentially a prayer of confession. Psalm 106 is really just a prayer of confession. It begins with praise to the Lord. It begins by confessing God's goodness and his faithfulness and his love to his people. And then it turns to a confession of sins committed by the people of God. And it reminds us, and this is really what I want us to think about this morning as we get into it. Psalm 106 reminds us that no matter how great our sin our Savior is greater still. Doesn't matter what we've done, where we've been, even if we're still doing it, because we're in that fight with it, the grace of God is still strong enough to pick us out of that, clean us up, and get us going again. No matter how great our sin, no matter how great our struggle, 
our Savior is greater still. So what we're going to do is just read the first six verses of Psalm 106. And then I'm, I'm going to essentially summarize portions of the psalm instead of reading it for the sake of time. But what it turns out to be, it's really, and you got, it's, it's a really hard for me to preach this because I'm not this kind of preacher. But it's really a laundry list of sins that we're about to talk about. And here's the way I want you to respond to me. If it is a sin, and it's not about behavior, you guys realize sin's more about the heart than it is what you do. It's about what's going, what you, how you think, the attitudes in your, in your mind and heart. You may never outwardly display it, but inside, you're feeling it. So these are mainly sins of, that, that are in the heart. Now, they may manifest themselves in ways, but when we get to the particular sins that we're talking about, And you and you feel like, yeah, that's me. I really need to let the Lord work in my heart on that. Here's the way I want you to respond: Just say, "Ouch." I'll I'll name a sin, and it's usually an attitudinal kind of thing. And if that's you, and that's where you're at, out loud, confess it this way: "Ouch." Can you say say it with me? "Ouch." Ouch. You on Facebook, YouTube, right now. When you hear the sin and you're struggling with it, and you know you're going to say, you're going to confess it by saying. Ouch. Okay. All right. Let's read these first six verses and we'll get into it. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord for he's good. His love endures forever. Who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or fully declare his praise? Blessed are they who maintain justice, who constantly do what is right. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Come to my aid when you save them, that I may enjoy the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may share in the joy of your nation and join your inheritance in giving praise. Verse 6, we have sinned, even as our fathers did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. Let's, we have sinned, even as our fathers did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. And now begins a process of poking you, identifying areas in your life that still remain, that God wants to deal with. Because those areas in your life, those secrets that you're trying to keep, those attitudes you're trying to suppress, they're going to keep raising up their ugly heads, and they're going to tear you up, and they're going to tear your relationships up. Because that's what sin does. And God knows that. And he's saying, get honest with me. Bring it up. Lay it on the table. And when you do, we can deal with it. And I'll wipe it away. Let's pray. Father, I love you. And I thank you so much for your mercy and your grace that meets us here. I'm so glad uh, that I don't have an image of you as some big God with a hammer hanging over my head. I'm so glad that I don't have an image of you as a God who can't wait to slap my hand for doing wrong. I'm so glad that my image of you is is of a God who loves me and cares about me and is more than ready to forgive me and, and clean me up and send me on my way. I am so glad that you're a patient God, a kind God, a gracious God, a God who has already dealt with my sin through the death of your son. And now you just ask me to come and confess with you the need that I still have and the struggle I'm still facing and you will help me 
Uh, you will give me the forgiveness I need. You will wash that, that sin, that shame away. You will help me live this life that you've called me to in Christ Jesus. We are not in this alone. I thank you for that. I thank you, Jesus. And I ask you to speak to us now through your word. Help us to be honest with you. Help us to be honest about ourselves so that you can have your way in our hearts and make us the people that you're calling us to be in Christ Jesus. In your name, your precious, holy, powerful, and gracious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I love taking people through the story as we do every other year or so. We take people through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It helps people understand that the people in the Bible are much the same as we are. And that we are capable of as much nonsense as they are. Because as we read the Old Testament stories about the ups and the downs of God's people, it can be really easy for us to say, I would never have done that. I would never have sinned against God like that. I mean, I would never have eaten that apple. Oh, yes, you would. And yes, you have. I would... I would never have killed my brother out of jealous anger. Oh, you might not have stabbed him in the heart with a knife, but I bet you did stab him several times in the back with your gossip and your accusations. I wouldn't have joined everybody while they danced around that golden calf. I'm not like that. Oh, yes, you are. You've made an idol out of your golden calf, whatever you want to call it. It might be your career, your job. Your car, your I would I wouldn't I would have stood up with Joshua and Caleb when they believed God would give them the No, you wouldn't have. You're not acting in faith right now in your life. Why do you think you would have been acting by faith back then? I mean, we like to think that we would not have succumbed to the seductions of sin like them, but oh come on. Yes, we have. And yes, we do. And, and, and we may be more like those Old Testament people than we care to admit, right? That's why I like taking people through that because suddenly you begin to realize, oh, my goodness. They're no different than I am. They're up, they're down, they're in, they're out. They love God one minute, complaining against him the next. That's just like me. Look, the thing I love about Psalm 106 is that it makes us think seriously about our sin. I mean, it stops us in our tracks and makes us think seriously about our sin. But when we think seriously about, about our sin, suddenly we begin to think seriously about our Savior, who's greater than any sin. So let's get into this. Y'all ready? Ouch. Just say it. Just practice. Ouch. Thank you very much. Because as, as I step on your toes, I'm stepping on mine too. Ouch. Okay. Verses 6 through 13 talk about the sin of forgetting. The <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even got the words out of my mouth good. You guys are already identifying. The sin of forgiveness. Verse 13 says, but they soon forgot what God had done and did not wait for his plan to unfold. How quickly and easily we forget just how good God is. We forget how faithful he's been. We forget how miraculously he protected us. We forget about how supernaturally he's provided for us. And here's the problem. When we fail to remember what he did yesterday, it's easy not to trust him with our todays and our tomorrows. I, I, honestly, Psalm 106 makes me look honestly at how easily I forget 
You know, you know when I find it's easy to forget how good God is, how powerful and almighty he is? It's easy for me for, to forget about God when I'm afraid. It, I, it causes me to panic and do something I wouldn't normally do. But in the moment, I'm so scared, boop, I'm looking for something to fix me, to help me. I'm also quick to forget God when I'm pretty successful and prosperous. When I'm doing well, I forget that it was God that brought me through all the stuff to put me in this position to be successful and prosperous. It's a real sin. It's a struggle. Ouch. The sin of ingratitude in, in verses 14 and 15. I hope that you go back and read this psalm so that you get the, the, uh, the, the content, the perspective of it. But verses 14 and 15 talk about the sin of ingratitude. The Israelites grew tired of eating manna during their journey to the promised land. So they began to complain. Yep, looking back over the last week, how often were you complaining? Well, guess what? That complaining was manifesting a symptom in your heart called ingrat ingratitude. Ingratitude is the root of all in in complaining. So the Israelites asked to go back to Egypt where they had meat and fish to eat. They Think about this for just a minute. God had miraculously delivered them from slavery. Now they said, well, I'd rather have fish and meat, so let's, let me go back to slavery again. Mmm. Does that sound like somebody in addiction? Oh, that's just sin, man. That's the way it, it plays little mind games with us here. Instead of being grateful for what they had, they whined loudly about what they didn't have. And how often are we just like that? An ungrateful man is like a hog under a tree eating acorns, but never looking up to see where those acorns come from. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says, Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I mean, looking back over this last week, were you guilty of the sin of ingratitude? Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Verses 16 through 18 talk about the sin of rebellion. <laughs> These verses mention two men in particular, Dathan and Abiram, who resisted Moses' leadership in every step along the way. You can see those two guys, every time Moses would make a decision, they would step up and say, well, who are you? You're not the boss of us. Who made you the leader? Until finally God got rid of them. If you remember the story, God finally removed Dathan and Abiram uh, and, their, and their rebellious allies. Because isn't it funny how quickly a rebel can gain a posse with them? Yeah, that's the way the devil works. But God finally removed them by having the earth open up and swallow them. You think God likes rebellion? Not at all. And we live in a culture that idolizes rebellion. I mean, we idolize rebellion. We promote rebellion against authority. Our culture loves to turn criminals into heroes. We have commercial advertisements that feed our minds and our emotions and our attitudes by saying, have it your way. Just do it, man. Just do it. But Romans 13 makes it really clear the authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who, bring, those who do so 
will bring judgment on themselves. Man, think back over the last week. Have you been guilty of the sin of rebellion? Verses 19 through 23 talk about the sin of idolatry. Idolatry is when we choose to worship something or someone other than God. Now, idolatry can take a lot of forms. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. We can turn anything into an idol. We can worship money. We can worship a career. We can worship power. We can worship a person. We can worship a political cause. We can worship a political party. We can worship an emotion, a feeling. We can worship an experience. We can worship ministry. Man, we'll turn anything into an idol. Anything. Even the blessings of God can become idols if you're not careful. If you don't keep them in their proper perspective. We can be chasing the blessings of God and forget all about God himself while we're chasing those blessings. It's because idols promise everything we think we want. Idols will promise us love and acceptance and belonging and significance and self-worth. And they'll promise us happiness. But that's a lie. The only one who can satisfy those needs, who can satisfy the, the, the deepest desires of our heart is God. God alone. That's why we have to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. We can't allow them to get distracted by any other thing. Focus on Jesus. That little book of 1 John again. I love that little book. It's one of my favorite books in the, in the Bible. It's so encouraging and it's so challenging. And it keeps reminding people that they are secure in the love of God. But it comes to the very end of the book. The very last verse in the book. Kind of summarizes what he's been trying to say. And he summarizes it in six little words. 1 John 5.21 says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the final say. Keep yourselves from idols. Stay focused on Christ. And, and, and the question is before us today, have we allowed anything else in our life to take God's rightful place in our hearts? Have we said and done things, acted in ways, that were against the, will, the word of God, but because it was, you know, in our zeal to be right. Anyway. Sin of discontentment, verses 24 through 27. Yeah. Me too. The sin of discontentment. The people of Israel just never could seem to rest content. They never could be content. Even when they finally arrived in the promised land. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a land that God had said was theirs. And it was just everything God had promised. They never could get content in that land. Neither do we. We can't seem to be content with anything. We always want something more. If you're rich, you want one more dollar. You know what I mean? It's always like something else. It's really funny to me, and I, th I think it's an observation that most of you will agree with. As our standard of living rises, so does the level of our discontentment. Remember when you said, if I could just make this amount of money per year, I'll be good? You start making that amount of money, and then what? Oh. That's a real issue, man. That's a real issue for us. We always seem to want what we don't have. And that can send us in some pretty strange places.
doing some pretty strange things. 1 Timothy 6 says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Look back over the last week or so. Have you struggled with discontentment? Always wanted something you didn't have. We're trained that way, by the way. This culture puts that in us at a young age. Never be satisfied with what you got. Always want what the other guy's got. The sin of compromise, verses 28 through 31. The sin of compromise. When the devil can't succeed in a direct attack against God's people, he often will come at us in an indirect way. Numbers 25 tells us about the king of Moab who could not defeat Israel on an open battleground. So he didn't even try. What he did was this. He used the women of Moab to seduce the men of Israel. The women then invited the men to join in the pagan sacrifices, which they were happy to do because most of them were pornographic. So Israel ends up worshiping false gods after a few years because that's what the devil does. He likes us to compromise. He likes us to take a step in the wrong direction. Oh, we don't have to run to the end of the trail. He just wants us to take a step in that direction. Theodore Roosevelt said, a compromise which results in a half step toward evil is all wrong. Sometimes we don't see it that way. But I would encourage you to stop and see what the end game is here. Where is this little half step going to take me if I keep walking it out? Ephesians 5.11 says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And I'm, with the help of the Holy Spirit right now, ask yourself, over this last week, have I been guilty of the sin of compromise? Have I taken some half steps? I said I would never do that, but here I go. And is God trying to get your attention and reel you back in so you get on track? Verses 32 through 33, the sin of unholy anger. The sin of unholy anger. These verses refer back to a story in Numbers 20. And I hope you guys will go back and kind of look at this and read these passages of Scripture for yourself. But in Numbers 20, it tells about the people of Israel who became angry with Moses because they had no water to drink. So Moses took this need for water to the Lord. Do you think the Lord knew the need? you think the Lord was ready to provide the people of Israel with water? Of course he was. So the Lord told Moses, you speak to that rock and water will come come out of that rock enough to feed enough to water the people and their animals what did Moses do instead he was angry here's what anger does anger is like a spark that starts a forest fire the people were angry at Moses Moses got angry at the people and now Moses instead of just speaking to the rock in obedience to the Lord what does he do he strikes the rock twice anger does that and man I'm telling you what right now we're in an age where if you say, if you say, I'm not sure what you can say now without sparking a fight. I think. But we're just, sometimes it's just better to keep your mouth shut, maybe. Because everything we do nowadays seems like it's pouring gasoline on a fire. Even things said in love and humility is easily taken as offensive and mean and hateful. Maybe it's just time for us to keep our mouth shut. But anyway, what I'm trying to say is, anger has a way of multiplying 
quickly, getting out of control. And we see that happen here in Moses, in Moses' life. Moses was angry with the people, so instead of speaking to the rock, he, stuck, he struck it twice with his staff. And that anger and that lack of self-control kept Moses out of the promised land. All that he had worked for, fought for, he missed out on it because of his unholy anger. Ephesians 4.26 says, don't, let, don't sin by letting anger gain control over you. We're in an age where it's easy to let anger gain control of us. And I'm going to speak to that right now. Exercise the self-control you've been given in the Holy Spirit. You don't have to reply to every statement someone makes. You don't have to correct every mistruth. Make sure that you're not doing it to score points. Not all anger is unholy. Let's be clear. Not all anger is unholy. Anger against evil and injustice is righteous. And we should stand up against it. But there are other times when anger is sinful. Anger can be sinful when it's a consequence of hatred or jealousy or resentment or bitterness. It becomes unholy when we wield it out of those motivations. And my, and my question is for you, look back over the last, are you guilty of unholy anger? Are you guilty of saying things just because you wanted to score some points, man? And instead, you might have just poured gasoline on a fire. And that fire is raging out of control. Unholy anger. The sin of worldliness, verses 34 through 49. The sin of worldliness. What's worldliness? Worldliness can be defined as a way of thinking and living without God as its focus. And I'm telling you again, in this particular age we're in, it's really hard to keep thinking and living with God as your sole focus. But I'm encouraging you right now, get your mind off of the chaos and the confusion and the anger and the vitriol that's out there and get your minds and hearts focused on God. Now more than any other time in my lifetime, it is a battle to stay focused on the Lord and His mission for my life and His calling for my life. Everything wants, me to, wants to drag me over here or over here, wants me to look there or there, and God is saying, no, you keep me as your focus. You keep me as your focus. Keep my mission your focus. Keep my calling your focus. The sin of worldliness. You see, in verses 34 and 35, it presents a really good picture of what worldliness is. When it says about the people of Israel, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. And how guilty we seem to be, particularly in this moment, of becoming just like everybody else in the way we respond to people. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Heck no. I'm going to fight them. What a worldly response. Worldliness begins when we take our eyes off Jesus. When we begin to desire what the world has to offer. Worldliness lets us believe we can, listen, this is, this is good, okay. I'm no, I know I wrote it, but this sentence right here is really good. The Holy Spirit gave it to me. Worldliness lets us believe we can be committed to Jesus but still carry on our love affair with the world. Spiritual adultery. 
1 John 2 says this, Stop loving this evil world and all that it offers you, for when you love the world, you show that you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only the lust for physical pleasure, the lust for everything we see and pride in our possessions. These are not from the Father, they're from this evil world. Are we guilty of worldliness? Michael, would you come back, buddy? Jenny? This is what I want you to see about Psalm 106, though. Psalm 106 begins with this great confession of faith in the love and the, and, and the, and the goodness and the greatness of God. It begins there. And, and that's where everything we look at needs to begin there, with how good God is, how kind he is, how loving he is. And then we go through this litany, this laundry list of sin that has been committed against God and against one another. And it's like, I feel so filthy. That's me in a nutshell. I am, I'm guilty of forgetting. I'm guilty of ingratitude. I'm guilty. I mean, suddenly you're exposed for who you are. And you're exposed with the struggles that you're facing. And you're exposed with these issues and these attitudes and sometimes these behaviors that have no place in the, in the, in, in the life of a son and daughter of God. It starts by looking at God, but then you start, oh, man. But I love the way Psalm 106 ends because it ends up by looking at God again. See, the problem is you can't continue to wallow around in your sin, your shame, your guilt. That will bring nothing but a heartache and despair and helplessness and hopelessness, and that's not where God wants you to stay. God wants to save you, redeem you, wash all that away so that you can get on with your life, living a life that brings glory and honor to him. Psalm 106 begins with a confession of faith in the goodness and the love of God, and then it ends with a statement of praise. It's a confession of faith in God's mercy and his power to save. In verses 46 and 47, it says, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. You see, it's against this backdrop of sin that the psalmist says, you've got to still keep trusting in the grace of God. Yeah, you're a filthy sinner, and sometimes you don't act like you even know Jesus at all. That's okay. You fess up. You be honest about the struggle you're in. You be honest about the attitude that fails to meet the standards of the Lord. You be honest about that behavior in your life that continues to bring reproach to his name. Be honest. Confess it. Bring it out. Put it on the table, and God will save you. He'll deliver you from that. He'll wash you clean. That's exactly, again, what, what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from every wrong. We need to confess when our hand is caught in the cookie jar. We've got to stop covering it up. We've got to take these masks off. And get honest with the Lord. And get honest with ourselves. Because that's the means by which we receive the grace of God. I believe with all my heart, confession is the bridge that takes us to what we really need. And what we really need is the grace of God. Confession is the bridge that gets us there. Being honest with God. Being honest with ourselves. 
being honest with other people. And that's a discipline I encourage you to practice. I'm so grateful in this church we have, we appreciate that. In too many churches, they're wearing masks. And those masks keep people from moving on in their walk with the Lord. Those masks prevent people from getting the help they need. Those masks keep them from receiving the grace of God that he freely offers, but they won't take the mask off long enough to receive it. That's why confession is so important. Confession of sin leads to forgiveness for sin. Confession of sin leads to healing for your soul. Confession of sin leads to restoration with the Lord. If we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us and to cleanse us. I love that phrase, to cleanse us. Cleanse us. He intends to cleanse us. He's not going to cover it over. He intends to help us get rid of it once and for all. And that's my prayer for me. I hope that's your prayer for you. Just <laughs> stand your feet. You don't let you know the altars are open. Look, I don't particularly like these kinds of sermons because people have a way of taking personal offense to them. And say, well, he must have known what I did this week. I have no idea what any of you did this week. Most sermons, as I'm preparing them, are directed toward me. Because I know what God's saying to me about my life. I just want you to know. Because the Bible points this truth out over and over again. There is no sin that God hasn't already forgiven in Christ Jesus. I don't care what it is. I don't care where you did it. I don't care who you did it with. I don't care how evil it seems. The grace of God is stronger than any sin. As human beings, we have a tendency to want to run away or cover it up. When God says, no, don't run away from me. Don't cover it up. You draw close to me. Draw close to me. Come to me. Lay it on the table and we'll deal with it. We'll deal with it. I would tell you that God has already dealt with it through the shed blood of his son, Christ Jesus. Forgiveness is there for the asking and the receiving. There's no need for you to walk around struggling with sin anymore. When you identify it, don't pretend it's not there. Don't cover it up. Don't keep it a secret. No, 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 no. Bring it to the Lord. Bring it to the Lord. And confess your need for a cleansing touch once, once again. Confess your need for a Savior whose grace is greater than your sins.